Hi everyone, I'm Gary Knoll. This is the Progressive Commentary Hour. Our theme today, examining the truth of what is mental illness, what is something that we can control and seek a positive outcome, and what is not changeable because the power structure that guides and oversees all of what is called mental health. We have a National Institute of Mental Health. You almost never hear from it. We have a lot of publications on psychiatry, but how much of it's legitimate? Well, Dr. Kelly Brogan is legitimate. She is a fighter. She's an activist. She is an activist for women's rights and human rights. And she is one of America's leading holistic psychiatrists. She is a regular MD, and she lives in Florida, practices in Florida. And the information on her will be at the end of the show. Nice to have you with us today, Kelly. It's an honor to be here. Let's take a look first and foremost at the mental health field, some of its history, and what we've done right and what we've done wrong. I want to look at it as objectively and honestly as possible, but also from your perspective, as someone who was trained in psychiatry, given what was considered current scientifically acceptable principles of treating disease, also given the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Psychiatry, and these were the tools. In any medical field, in any field, we start with what we've learned, and we also are pretty much obedient to what is required to maintain our status and the safety of our licensure. So that in mind, you're first and foremost a medical doctor. You're specialty of psychiatry but then you decided that something within the current psychiatric model was not in alignment with what you felt the patient needed in order to heal. Please take that journey with us now. The form is yours. So I think it's an important moment uh, to highlight in my history as a college student. I was an undergrad at MIT and I worked a suicide hotline called Nightline voluntarily, electively. And we had contact on a crisis level with many of the students who were struggling and really on the brink. And MIT has one of the highest completed suicide rates, as far as I'm aware, in the undergraduate system. So when I would interact with these students, I was tasked with getting them connected to the mental health system getting them into the hands of a psychiatrist. And when I look back, I can really appreciate that one of the reasons I then went on to become a medical doctor and a psychiatrist is because of my gross intolerance of human suffering and my own personal discomfort with another's struggle. I needed a quick fix myself. And so I needed to specialize in helping people to suppress and in many ways, oppress themselves and their emotional experience. And so in my specialization as a psychiatrist, I always had a quick fix to offer. And I never had to tolerate myself how challenging it is to really be around human grief and shame and rage and all of these challenging so-called negative emotions and the nature of human suffering. So when I specialized in that uh, rubric in that paradigm, and I became a card-carrying psychiatrist, 
I felt empowered around one of the greatest challenges we face as humans, which is how do we interface with adversity? And so in my specialization, I was a believer. <laughs> I studied hard, I worked hard, blood, sweat, tears, and $200,000 of debt were underneath me when I finally was confronted with the rupture of my lifetime, maybe, uh, which was my first diagnosis. So I had been living very unconsciously up until that time. I was in my fellowship. So after internship, after residency and specializing in medicating pregnant and breastfeeding women. And I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's thyroiditis. So I was diagnosed with potentially a chronic autoimmune condition. And I had been writing prescriptions for patients for years at that point. And I wanted out. I <laughs> said so there had to be an escape hatch. I don't want to take a prescription for the rest of my life. And I remember that there was also a moment around that time when I was prescribing to pregnant women. I myself was pregnant at the time. And I was writing a Zoloft prescription for a patient. And I had this little rumble inside that said, I would never take this medication. I don't care how much data you put in front of me about how it might be safe from a you know, teratogenesis perspective, which means that most of the data, registry data up until that point had demonstrated that, you know, these medications don't cause babies to have extra toes and feet. So it must be safe. It's the best we can do. We don't want to leave women suffering without available treatment. So we're going to forge ahead and prescribe to these women. And that was the premise upon which I prescribed to hundreds, if not thousands of women over many years. And in that moment where I said, I wouldn't want to take this medication, I don't care what you tell me about its potential safety. I suppressed that and ignored that until I was presented with this opportunity to really recognize the glass ceiling of conventional medicine. I knew what conventional medicine had to offer me and I was not interested in a lifetime of symptom management through the pharmaceutical lens. And so I went to a naturopath and it was very uncharacteristic of me. I was really trained to parrot phrases like, you know, supplements are dangerous and diet really doesn't matter that much. Uh, and it's important to stick with the gold standard of allopathic uh, evidence-based medicine. And so when I went to a naturopath, I had all of that healthy skepticism that I brought in the door with me. And it was about six to nine months later that I could see in black and white on paper through my lab work that I had put this condition into remission. And now a decade and a half later, it's a long lasting remission that has ignited in me um, a reverence for the human body, a reverence for the messaging that symptoms represent. And I often say, you know, they are you telling you about you. So how can you decode that message? This is not what I was taught. I was never taught to ask why a symptom is presenting in a patient's experience. There, there was no appreciation of the patient's narrative of the potential meaning it was really reduced to there is a chemical imbalance, um, there's a problem that needs to be fixed, and the faster we can fix it, the better, and we'll just keep on trying to fix it and keep on applying you know, more and more of the same until the patient feels that you know, things have been managed. And I walked away from that model, and that's when I discovered um, the power of the dark night of the soul and these tight squeezes that people often have to pass through 
so that they can expand into who it is that they've always been destined to become. And this is what we are short circuiting when we interfere. It's like, you know, if we cut with the scissors, the chrysalis before the butterfly emerges, you know, the caterpillar dies. And there's something on a soul level, you know, that happens when we message patients with the concept that their behavioral, their cognitive, their mood related experience is wrong. It's a problem and it needs to be fixed. For virtually all of the last 50 years, we've been led to believe that the primary cause of depression and anxiety and some other mental disorders as well is a brain chemical imbalance, an imbalance in how the body uses serotonin. Recently, there was a outstanding report, virtually a game-changing report by Dr. Joanna Moncrief that showed that after looking at all the studies in the scientific literature on the brain chemical imbalance and serotonin, and that's the reason why Prozac, Zoloft, Paxil, Effexor, et cetera, these SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibiting drugs work, is because it rebalances the serotonin dopamine levels. She said, no, it's not true. Can't prove that. Now, I'd like for you to take that further because virtually 100% of the diagnosing that's going on out there is done based upon the symptoms in the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, and then immediately attaching a remedy, a treatment, and then the person stays for the rest of their life on a drug. If the drugs worked, why would they have to stay the rest of their life? But then there was a Harvard study, I think it was around 2014, that showed that Prozac was no more effective than a placebo, a sugar pill. Now, once again, Harvard, major study, published in a peer-reviewed journal by a highly respected physician-psychiatrist. And it changed nothing. Not a single thing changed. Nor is it likely that her study, finding that we don't need and shouldn't be using these, has changed anything. Put your perspective on all this, please, starting with the fact that we have been misdiagnosing people and mistreating them for a long time. So an important psychological concept is that of cognitive dissonance. So when our lived experience presents to us something that is irreconcilable with our pre-existing belief system, we have a fork in the road that we've confronted, right? We can either suppress that, dismiss it, deny it, sort of scrub it away as an anomaly, or we can shift the paradigm of our belief system to accommodate this new information. This is not just an informational phenomenon, it's also an emotional maturational phenomenon. Because in order to grow and expand in these ways, you have to be comfortable being wrong and sitting with uncertainty. And on a nervous system level, most of us are still so much in the space of our trauma that that feels like a potential lethal assault, like an existential dilemma. And so we move on stuck in the old paradigm. And we've seen this over and over and over again with new data that has come out indicting these tired structures of the psychiatric guild. 
and nothing changes. And it's not because the information is not robustly established through many rigorous scientific uh, efforts. You know, Joanna Moncrief is one of the many foremothers and forefathers whose shoulders I stand on uh, as a, you know, recently practicing psychiatrist who have been whistleblowing for years. You know, by the time I began to question the efficacy and safety of the medications I had been trained to prescribe, I had many books, you know, by Peter Bregan and Irving Kirsch and Joanna um, David Healy to consult who had already exposed the bankruptcy of the so-called monoamine hypothesis, which is more popularly known as the chemical imbalance theory and more specifically known as the serotonin deficiency model of depression. Although this is loosely applied to all of the so-called mental illnesses. So if you were to survey, and it's been done, folks on the street, you would find that upwards of 80% of them actually believe that depression, for example, is caused by a serotonin imbalance or low serotonin levels. Where did they get this idea, right? That people are walking around with these concepts, these biological concepts that somehow have permeated their consciousness and are then influencing their consumerism as patients. And it's important to know that we are one of three countries worldwide that allow for direct-to-consumer advertising, which means that corporations are allowed, industry is allowed to speak directly to patients about their, in this case, biology and chemistry. And so what happens is that is the beginning of a very important, powerful, and influential relationship between industry and the patient. It's almost the beginning of a sort of spell that they can come under, where if they are now carrying the belief that something is wrong with their brain chemistry, and that is why they are experiencing anxiety, insomnia, low energy, low or erratic mood, then when they go to a prescribing psychiatrist or a primary care physician, even after, let's say, a seven-minute appointment, and they are offered this remedy, which is a little orange bottle that happens to have their name on it that they're going to open every single day, right, and get further conditioned around this relationship, which is something is wrong with you. Here's how to fix the wrongness that is you, right? So the power of that relationship, the power of that belief has been well studied. And uh, Irving Kirsch has done a lot of the research on the nature of not only the placebo effect, but of the active placebo effect, which is to say that a lot of the so-called side effects, they're all effects, right? They're only called side effects if we have this idea that there is a primary effect that is taking place to correct an underlying imbalance. But in the active placebo effect, this side effect is registered on a psychological level as an indication that the medication is working. And so there's this whole inner pharmacopoeia that is unlocked, wherein the patient then actually does start to feel different and potentially better. But if you study medications with similar so-called side effect profiles. So let's say they both have dry mouth, they both have 
constipation as side effects, there is no statistically significant benefit that can be afforded to a so-called antidepressant. So that means that the mind is driving this vehicle that is taking us to the understanding that these medications are efficacious in a specific way. And so when we are conditioned around this belief that our chemical imbalances are being corrected through these medications, we are conditioned around what uh, Dr. Moncrief calls a disease-based model, a disease-based understanding, right? You have the disease, this is its nature. We're going to address the problems related to that disease through this special treatment and specific treatment. And what she has been suggesting for many years is that a drug-based model is more appropriate. Since there is no such thing as a clear understanding of what depression actually is on a biochemical level, then we might as well call it a drug-based effect. And this year in uh, 2022, she came out with a peer-reviewed umbrella review study, which is considered one of the most robust ways to analyze pre-existing data. And these studies that she evaluated included tens of thousands of patients and many different means of exploring the role of serotonin through receptor analyses, through genetic analyses, through postmortem, through what are called tryptophan depletion studies, which is essentially taking normative patients, healthy patients, and inducing a state of serotonin deficiency in these patients to find that actually they don't become depressed. And in this broad spectrum analysis of all of these different types of studies and reviews, what she ultimately concluded and her team concluded is that there is no evidence in now seven decades, there is no evidence to support the serotonin theory of depression, which would suggest that we should abandon it and move on except that the entire house of cards of the antidepressant industry has been built on this concept that these medications are correcting a chemical imbalance and that's how they work. So if we don't actually know how they work or what they're doing, we have to go back to the drawing board and we have to potentially present to patients that these are simply drugs and they have drug-based effects. And here are some of the reported effects. Are you interested? Because there are also some very significant side effects to consider. And that's where the conversation leads us is into the realm of adverse effects, some of which are lethal. Dr. Brogan, we have tens of millions of Americans now diagnosed with clinical depression or bipolar or anxiety disorders and a range of other conditions. They believe that there's nothing they can do on their own. We've had very high levels of suicidality and success in suicide. The number one cause of death in boys 10 to 14 years of age is suicide. We've also had people, rather than commit suicide, they start taking fentanyl, they take opiates, uh, Oxycontin is very common, and they're drinking themselves literally to death. We've had the highest number, over 100,000, Americans die because of alcohol just last year. So when you add in the number of suicides, the greatest number in American history, and the psychiatric community 
did nothing. I heard no one, uh, as far as the National Institutes of Mental Health, the Surgeon General, coming forward and saying, in order to help those of you who are homebound, who may be depressed, uh, let us take a look at what you can do in a constructive way that's within your power and provide you with some tools that can help you so you don't go into an addictive behavior or you don't kill yourself. I saw none of that. To the contrary, the whole idea was to order in everything, order in the worst foods, order in alcohol, and then veg out in front of your computer and you know, binge watch television and films. That's not a healthy environment for anyone under any circumstance. And yet the psychiatric community, I felt, is partly responsible because they should have stood up and they should have said, let's deal with this without the need for a pharmacological base. And yet they didn't. And the only thing any psychiatrist would say, and then a lot of psychologists would say, you need to be on one of the SSRIs. That'll help you. Without looking at the actual science to show that why is it that people taking these drugs have the highest level of suicide or suicidal ideation? That's in the scientific literature. So clearly they're not abiding by their own science, but it also negates what people throughout all of history. We've always had crisis. We've always had dramas. We've always had people at times in their life where they didn't want to know what to do and thought about suicide or attempted suicide. But we also had the power of conversation, the power of family, the power of those who love you or your friends coming together to see if they can help you through this particular crisis in your life. Now we've made a whole generation of young people, both the millennials and before them, now after them, the Z generation, believe that they're not able to help themselves, that the government will help them, the family is not significant, and they don't have to have their own unique identity. So a lot of young people have no idea who they are or why they're alive. And when you get into a desperate situation and the bubble that you were raised in is very limited in its options for dealing with crisis, and then you become hypersensitive and deeply depressed, then what's your way out? So that's what I would like you to address. What is the way out that is non-biological? What are the lifestyle and behavior modifications you've seen that have worked with your patients that could help other people? I have said that I believe victim consciousness is the only human pathology and the root of all suffering because it is fundamentally a disconnection from one's own innate divinity and one's own power. The model of it's your genes, it's your chemical imbalance, so take your meds and be a good patient is predicated on dependency, on powerlessness, on, on helplessness. So if we can initiate patients, people, to their own power, we are offering them a way to make sense out of their struggle. Their struggle becomes an invitation to level up, to expand. And there actually is a version of them that is dying. That impulse of, I can't do this anymore, this isn't working, is actually wise feedback. 
There are many ways that those who are struggling are attempting to, as I call it, buy eggs from a hardware store. They are attempting to make something work, a relationship, a job, a set of circumstances, an old pattern of behaviors that simply isn't working anymore. It isn't meeting one's needs any longer. And so that futility is expressed as, let's say, anxiety or depression. That is a wise response to wrong living. And so how do we set the conditions to reconnect someone to their innate power and specifically their power, specifically their power of choice? We have to create the conditions for them to feel that their choices matter. And so that's why I became very focused on lifestyle change, right? So the mundane chopping wood, carrying water of your daily experience and the potential that lifestyle choices have to impact actually on a nervous system level, your experience of safety. How can you create the conditions through your power of choice to send a signal of safety to your nervous system so that actually regeneration becomes possible, so that all of the uh, reorganization and reharmonization of your bodily systems and your psyche and your spirit become available. How do you align that? So what I found through my practice is that when I would ask patients to commit seriously to exercising their power of choice, through three minutes of contemplative practice, so three minutes of meditation a day, through radical nutritional shifts, conscious consumerism, which means beginning to learn about how they were potentially sending signals of unsafety to their body through you know, toxic products that they were using in their soap or laundry or whatever, and also through detox, right? So beginning to drain the bucket of accumulated burdens. But very importantly, there is a framework to these lifestyle choices that is a sort of reprogramming around the fact that nothing is actually wrong with them. Nothing. The body does not mis make mistakes and symptoms emerge and surface as invitational messengers for a reason. And that reframe accompanied by these behavioral choices created a platform on a nervous system level for the tapering of these medications in a lasting way that wasn't available when I just started to taper patients off of medication, you know, the day they came to my office. And that's why at this point I have published a randomized placebo controlled trial. I have published case series and I've published about a dozen case reports, some of which are medical history making because of what is possible when these conditions are created and when there is a reframe around the so-called illness itself as being the portal through which somebody can access their newly expanded and empowered experience of who it is that they are. Let's take a look at the over-medication of our children. Let's take a look at how legitimate overall is the ADD and ADHD diagnosis as compared to all the changes that have occurred in a child's life or what they're doing, like starting the day with caffeine and, and sugars and refined carbohydrates and, and being nutrient deficient 
and how by correcting these lifestyle changes, we frequently see that the diagnosis is no longer there. Just, I did a clinical study on ADD and ADHD, and I had a 94% success rate after six months. Every kid was diagnosed uh, independently. It was on medication, generally Ritalin. And uh, by just asking a simple question, are you hyper or losing attention throughout the whole day, or is it episodic? It was episodic. Are there classes where you pay attention? You're interested? Yes. Classes you don't like? Not as interested? Yes. Are you the same at home as you are in school? No. So what kind of diagnosis is it where you act out a certain psychological pathology at part of the day and then you're happy and balanced and normal the rest? That makes no sense. But that's how shallow the diagnosing and treatment for most ADHD has been in my experience. I'd like to hear yours. And then the idea that children now think it's normal to be on these psychoactive medications. So when we look at the concept of symptoms, it either means that something is wrong with the person experiencing the symptoms, or it means that the symptoms are an indicator that something is wrong with the environment and the context of that person's life. So this is never more applicable than in the 10,000 plus toddlers who have been medicated with stimulants and this concept of ADHD and the pathologizing of childhood that we are now in the normalization process of accepting apparently because we are saying that there is something wrong with these children instead of acknowledging that there is something very wrong about the way that we are raising children these days, the context that we are putting children in, the expectations we are placing on them to perform like industry factory workers from childhood, to be comfortable and happy being separated from their families, and to be interested in an indoctrination program that the educational system could be described as. So the idea that children should behave rather than inspiring them and accessing their curiosity, supporting their spiritual development, is part of a hierarchical top-down model that is really representative of the entire control grid we are still working under, right? There is no um, meaning to your personal exploration, to your agency. Uh, it's best if you just comply, you're obedient, and you perform. This is also represented in our parenting, where as parents, we demand respect from our children, we exercise authority, and we impose ourselves on our children. Well, what happens is that their needs go unmet and needs must be met. So they will find other ways to meet those needs. They kind of like squeeze out in other places, like, or some kind of whack-a-mole. And these children who may or may not be uh, obedient on medication to evidence their well-treated ADHD are still struggling on a very deep level that is not acknowledged. And they become potentially adults who don't know how to honor the meaning of their own needs, their own perception, and their felt experience. And you can understand why if you're looking to control a population, this is a very important disconnection to foster, right?
the disconnection from the wisdom of one's own no and the wisdom of this doesn't work for me. I don't want to do this. <laughs> this isn't a fit for me. And I've been very interested in the manufacturing of illness um, in children and specifically a Canadian study that looked at uh, children who were medicated with stimulants and found that they were 13 times more likely to be medicated with antipsychotic medications and four times more likely to be medicated with antidepressants. And that's not to say anything of the adverse effect profile of the stimulants themselves, including sudden cardiac death, right? So the ways in which these children can get caught in a web of what is called polypharmacy is the establishment of a lifelong patient, right? To unravel all of the ways in which uh, their behavior and their cognition are now under the influence of drugs is very challenging when you have multiple medications on board, most of which are socially sanctioned, especially in the culture of the public school system. So the disservice that is being done to these children is, it ranges from the spiritual to the physical. We are seeing tremendous amount of suicide in active and retired service personnel. About 20 to 21 per day for the last 30 years have been killing themselves. Generally, they put a gun in their mouth, blow their brains out. The vast majority of those have been on different selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or antipsychotic medications that is never put into question, that has never been examined. Now, you add up the total number of 20, 21 per day for the last 30 years, you're dealing with over 160,000 Americans who died. That's more than died in World War I. That's more than died in the uh, Vietnam War by a substantial number. And that's, that's something that no one is aware of except the people suffering. What would you say is the problem right now with the entire psychiatric mental health community and how they look at a problem and look for a solution. Because clearly, whatever they're doing with these children is not working. What they're doing with these soldiers are not working. When we become attached to the potential benefit and the effect of a medication, it becomes very easy to overlook signals of harm that surface, especially in the early days of a medication's presence in the market. And one of the factors that influenced the cessation of my prescribing um, most powerfully was learning about the potential that these medications have to induce homicide and suicide in otherwise non-homicidal and non-suicidal patients. And I remember that I was contacted by a grassroots activist named Kim Witzak. And she wanted to tell me about how her husband was prescribed an antidepressant for routine stress. And she found him hanging in their garage and that he had never experienced suicidality in his life. At around that time, I had also uh, been seeing patients who developed suicidality shortly after they were started on medications. 
And so I started to connect some dots. But it wasn't until a 2011 paper came out by Lucier et al. And this paper looked at a number of otherwise mentally healthy individuals who were prescribed antidepressants for run-of-the-mill stressors, including a pet's death or a divorce. And these patients went on to commit acts of suicide and homicide that were otherwise inexplicable clinically. And they found that these patients were all positive for certain liver enzyme anomalies that could potentially explain what was some sort of an intoxication effect, even though it wasn't observable from the outside in, that these patients often looked more calm. They often looked quote unquote better. And when they went on to uh, experience these adverse outcomes, it's a euphemistic way of putting it, it was theorized that they were in many ways in a sort of toxic uh, experience related to the medication physiologically. The trouble is that the average prescriber does not risk stratify according to these liver enzyme anomalies. This is not gold standard practice, and there's no interrogation of the patient's biology or otherwise to determine whether or not in the state of some sort of um, adverse physiologic effect from these medications, these patients might go on to commit these sorts of acts of violence. And because there is no risk stratification, it's quite a Russian roulette of the highest order, I would say. And that is one of the major reasons that I put down my prescription pad and never started a patient on medication again. A true story. A woman was about to pass and she asked for her final rites from a priest. And the priest was delayed. When he got to the hospital, um, he went in and gave a woman final rites, and she passed that night. Three weeks later, the priest was back in the hospital and walked by a door, and the woman called out to the priest, and she said, I've been waiting for three weeks to get my final rites. The priest gave the final rites to the wrong patient. And the patient died. The right patient didn't die. And we know that people die frequently around birthdays, holidays, anniversaries. Something is important. They stay alive. Which means that in every human being, we have an innate capacity to manifest some very positive healing and improvements if we are trained in such techniques, if we honor the innate immune system, uh, we can do a lot of healing. And yet in psychiatry, that is completely negated. It's as if a person's belief, their faith, has nothing to do with the outcome, only a pharmaceutical outcome. Could you describe what happens when in your practice, as a holistic psychiatrist, you're encouraging a person to have faith in themselves, their faith to change, and seek the tools they need to make that transformation. One of the most important elements of accessing the power of faith and belief in one's capacity to heal 
is to address any factors that may be fueling what is called the nocebo effect or a certain kind of hexing that can come on board and interfere directly with our capacity to access that inner healing power. The medical literature speaks to the power of the nocebo effect, the ways in which patients can be hexed when they believe that discontinuing conventional treatment is going to lead them into a place of harm and injury. And if you want to support the liberation path that a patient might walk away from the medical system, it's essential to address this nocebo effect. And one of the studies that really inspired me to take seriously the power of this nocebo effect looked at patients who were treated to remission on Prozac. And these patients were divided into two groups. And one of the groups was to go on taking their Prozac dose that had put them into a so-called remission of their symptoms. And the other group would be randomized to placebo, to a sugar pill. And the patients were aware of this. And so what happened is that upon randomization, both of the groups developed statistically significant symptoms of depression. And that included the group that continued taking their same dose of Prozac that had supposedly put them into remission. So the only way to explain this and many studies that have actually been done in this vein is to appreciate the hexing that can come through the suggestion that you need to remain a compliant pharmaceutical patient in order to be well. And if you stray from that path, you're going to get sick again and you're going to struggle and suffer. So if we can understand the nocebo literature as simply supporting the power of your belief, the power of your mindset, then we can reframe experiences however it is that serves our ongoing connection to our innate power. And one of the ways that I like to do that uh, is to remind myself and others of this phrase that suffering ends where meaning begins. How can you get curious about what's happening? How can you find meaning in this leg of your journey? How can you look back, almost transport yourself into your future and look back on your experience to enjoy this story that could only have unfolded this way? When we can access that meaning-making, we can begin to embrace what's in front of us, to accept reality as it is in this given moment. And on a psychological level, on an emotional level, and even on a nervous system level, we set the conditions for regeneration and repair. And without that important foundational effort, it can be very difficult to access what is right there for the taking. Good. <clears throat> My last issue is one that is not being addressed. It's part of the woke culture or identity politics. Um, there's a certain way you must talk, act, and speak. And if you don't do exactly as is expected, you're supposed then to have triggered all types of 
hypersensitive issues in a person that makes them feel unsafe, that invalidates their own life, and therefore you should be punished um, completely, even if it means destroying your entire career, uh, erasing you from everything you've done. You could be a Nobel Prize winner who's had a cure for disease, it doesn't matter. Say one word that a young person doesn't like and your life is worthless. Pathologizing preconditioned mindsets of words and then wanting to censor people. Now this is uniquely a phenomena in the young people. Not all young people, but I've been able to identify the groups most likely to do this and that's people who grow up around professional parents. Lawyers, doctors, engineers, scientists, professors, because they work so hard, they've been so disciplined to achieve something, but whatever they achieve never seems to be enough. They all then most get on this, this illusory, ethereal ladder to succeed. I'm climbing that ladder of success. I have to sacrifice time with my children, time with my pet, time with my loved one, time for my friends, time with myself on hobbies, time to read that book, sitting in a corner with 20 other books. But I will do that sooner or later because I'm going to get someplace. <clears throat> when I get to a certain level of being relative in my community, among my peers, to the larger population, then I will make time for everything that I missed as if you could make that up, and you can't, not when raising children. As a result, imagine having two professional parents, but you've got the best tutors and nannies and counselors, and your child's perfect and is flawless, and you're their best friend. And now that child has no understanding of the real world, responsibility of cause and effect, and they believe that when they go to college, they should go to college so it's comforting and a fun place. Not as when I went to college was a place to learn critical thinking, master your skills, then take those into the real world. These people are graduating from high school or college with no real skills. They have no knowledge of the world, civics, culture, ethnicities. All they know is about their lifestyle and the standard of living that their parents have worked nonstop to achieve and their peers are frequently the same. That breeds a certain type of mental predisposition. In effect, it's conditioning them. Much like Orwell's 1984 or Aldous Huxley's Soma in Brave New World. So what I see is I see a lot of people who will not discuss, will not communicate, where there's no civility, or manners, or morals. There's just raw, unbridled rage. Either showing itself, or you say the magic word and suddenly they react. Or not knowing a thing about you. If you're not exactly like them, they don't want to see you. They don't want you lecturing on their campus. They want nothing to know about you. And this is not a small number of people. This is now being encouraged in every university and college nearly in the United States. And it will seep into the professions like psychiatry. And it will then manifest in how we diagnose and treat people, just like right now it's completely normal to censor people, whole groups of people. Right now, as a psychiatrist, you're one of those people, if I look in your background, who's being attacked and vilified. 
They don't want to know that you exist. They do not consider anything you've ever done as valid. But you're not alone. Everyone doing something important that challenges the way the establishment's narrative is, is likewise attacked. Dr. McCullough, Dr. Cole, uh, Dr. Malone on the front page of the New York Times. Why? Orthodox to the hilt, but then they found something wrong with COVID that didn't make sense. And when they questioned it, boom, beat them into the ground. And the so-called liberal community is leading the charge against this, like a new liberal McCarthyism. I say this for last because I'd like for you to address this. If you've seen this same phenomenon, especially in young people, because as you know, by the age of 10, it's very difficult to change a child's perception of reality. I mean, what they've absorbed, what they believe, what they've seen, what they've mimicked, what they've idolized, or what they feared, that becomes most of their reality for the rest of their life, which is so hard for a lot of people who are smart people doing stupid things or good people doing bad things. And you can't change them. It's like talking to a brick wall. Have you seen this? And if so, what does this portend for the future of people's mental health when we're already inculcating everything they would need, in your words, to pathologize the mind? So I see three issues at play in what we might call woke culture, complete with this concept of microaggressions and uh, politically correct uh, speech. And I do think that it actually begins with the punishment and reward approach to parenting. And most would assume, well, of course you punish and discipline your child. And of course you praise and reward them when they do well in school or they comply with your expectations. The shadow of this, as I think well exposed by author Alfie Cohen in a book called Unconditional Parenting that changed the way I mother, is that you are slowly and insidiously disconnecting your child from their own navigational compass and from their own sense of inner reward and consequence, right? So if Billy gives Sally a blueberry and I, as the doting mother, come in and say, Billy, that was really great that you did that. That was a generous thing to do, a good thing to do. Now, because of the nature of his dependency on me as his mother, and he is a child, he is going to outsource the fulfillment that he might otherwise experience unto himself. He's going to outsource it to me, and he's going to give a future blueberry to another little girl to please his mommy, right? Because we are not initiated from childhood to adulthood, that is not a part of our rubric societally. We take all of this conditioning straight into adulthood and we never learn what is probably the most essential concept of our time right now, which is personal responsibility. We never learn that it's actually my job to make sure that I feel good and it is my job to manage when it is that I feel bad. It is no one else's responsibility to caretake me because now I am an adult. I am no longer a child. 
And the graduation from child consciousness to adult consciousness is strategically, in my opinion, suppressed. Because if you have a population of chronological adults who are still maturationally children, they are very susceptible to trauma-based mind control because you're going to have those adults who are seeking to appease authority and those are often doctors and lawyers and academicians. We have a special relationship to being acknowledged by authority in a hierarchical structure that makes us very good citizens, right? And you also have those who will vilify authority. And I've come through even my own experience of angry activism as being just another way to relate to authority as if the authority is real rather than claiming non-oppositional and non-referential sovereignty. But one of the most essential elements of sovereignty is emotional sovereignty. We don't learn as children, and many of us are attempting to learn as adults, how to feel feelings, literally how to feel feelings. So if I don't know how to capacitate in my body, in my system, shame, or anger, or sadness, then I will reflexively make it someone else's responsibility to make me feel better. The truth is no one can make me feel good or make me feel bad. That's an inside job. But if it is societally held that it's not my responsibility, that it's everyone else's responsibility to caretake me in the same way that it was when I was a toddler, then I will never grow that muscle. I will never learn how to be with my own felt experience and to explore it for its inner messages. And of course, many of us who are interested in trauma work know that you only meet dimensions of yourself when you are triggered and bothered and upset by someone else. You wouldn't be upset by them if you weren't projecting your own disavowed parts onto them and relating in this dyadic way around what is really internal to you. So there are huge spiritual depths to be plumbed when we simply make the choice to take responsibility for our lived experience. And when we are encouraged not to do so, rest assured that it serves a power structure that fundamentally has literally zero interest in our well-being and our fulfillment as human beings. That was terrific. One of America's leading holistic psychiatrists, truly helping people heal. I'm Gary Knoll for the Progressive Commentary Hour. Thank you all for watching and listening. Have a nice day.